First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. That's where we'll begin here in just a moment. Uh, a friend of mine is restoring a classic car. It's a 1960 Olds, and uh, it's, it's as long as a city bus. It's huge, and it's super cool. And he shares a lot of pictures online uh, about the different changes he's making to it, new paint, new tires, new rims, new this, new that. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to follow along. Uh, from afar, but there's one piece of equipment he has not bragged about, one piece of equipment that he's not taken a single picture of, but I would say this piece of equipment is utterly vital to the functioning of his car, any gasoline-powered car for that matter. Uh, it's, It's a piece that without it, you don't even have a car, and that piece is the oil plug. That oil plug holds the oil in your car. If you don't have an oil plug, you don't have oil. And if you don't have oil, you don't have an engine. And if you don't have an engine, you don't have a car. You've just got a lawn ornament is all you have. But no one talks about oil plugs. They'll brag about a lot of things related to their cars, but no one brags. You seen the oil plug on this bad boy? (laughs) It's 10 threads per inch, only the best. You don't even know. People don't do that because it's boring. It's bland. Who cares? It's not paint. It's not headlights, it's not these things, other things that are exciting. But I'm telling you, an oil plug is mission critical to the function of your car. In 1 Timothy, Timothy, the recipient of the letter, is leading a broken church in the city of Ephesus. And Paul, the writer of this letter, is instructing Timothy and all the people of the church on how to fix this broken church. And Paul talks a lot in his letter about things that are essential, but in our estimation are things that probably are not that exciting. It's oil plug type stuff that Paul is often focused on. But these theological oil plugs are mission critical. Without them, the church implodes. Paul's intention in this letter is to guide Timothy in making the church of Ephesus an outward-focused church. That's just a natural thing. A church that knows the gospel and loves the gospel and follows Jesus is going to be a church that looks outward to the lost and outward to those who are hurt and broken. But that's not what's happening at the church in Ephesus. This church has turned inward. It's focusing on each other. And last week in our introduction to this letter, we spent quite a bit of time uh, focusing on the problem in the church. The problem is this, there are false teachers from within the church. Remember, they're from inside. They're known people. They've been there for years. Their kids went went to vacation Bible school in Ephesus, and they're all, that's a joke, they're all from the same area. They all live there, but they know each other. It's, It's not nefarious outsiders infiltrating, trying to scheme for power in these things. It's people inside the church family who have mutilated Scripture, and created for themselves their own type of mystical legalism. And they're laying that on God's people. That's the problem. The, the impact of that problem has been pretty severe. The church has turned inward. It no longer proclaims the gospel to the lost as it ought to. Also in its inward looking, the church now has begun to fight among itself. They're at each other's throats all the time. And then so many of the people who are in the lead are nonsense Teachers, Remember how Paul described them? They don't even know what they're talking about. So it's, 
really difficult days in the church in Ephesus. Paul's writing to Timothy and to the church to turn this around. Our passage we're going to study today is tightly connected to what we studied last week. In fact, you could preach all of chapter 1 as one long but cohesive sermon for sure. Uh, and so here in this, what we're going to study this morning, Paul gives Timothy and the church further instructions as to how to refute the false teachers and how they can be an effective church. I want to be an effective church. I don't want to play church. I don't just want to have some place to go on Sundays and look inward and be happy because things are always the same and they never change and this is just the way it's got to be to meet my preferences. I want to be an effective church, and you do too. You want to be a church that has a footprint in this community and all the communities around us. We're a church that bears a gospel responsibility. God has blessed us richly for over 70 years because the people who founded this church and the people who uphold this church are those who walk by faith with Jesus Christ. God honors that. I want to be a church that's effective. There are many things we can look at and say, look at what God has done, and we should do that and rejoice in it, but we shouldn't rest. We shouldn't stop. We've got to keep pressing forward by faith in Jesus Christ. Here are some questions you should be able to answer at the end of our time today. You should be able to answer this question. What's the purpose of God's law to the Christian who's saved by grace? Another question. What's the relationship between God's law and the gospel? Another question. How do we protect the church? Law, gospel, protection of the church, Those are the things that Paul has in focus for us today. Three characteristics of an effective, missional, functional Christian church. I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Paul continues writing and says this. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is... We also know the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I want to show you this morning in our passage 
three characteristics of the effective church. By effective, outward-focused, potent with the gospel. Three characteristics of that church. And the first is this. The effective church uses God's law to diagnose sin. The effective church uses God's law to diagnose sin in verses 8 and 11, 8 through 11. So if you were with us last week or if you were with us five minutes ago, you remember the problem in Ephesus, people within the church teaching false things. That it's a twisted form of legalism, mutilates scripture and pulls people away from the gospel. And again, I want you to remember how Paul described these people in verse 7. He, called, he says of them that they want to be teachers of the law but they don't know what they're talking about. Now, what is the law that Paul's referring to here? Well, the the first five books of the Old Testament are known as the law, but Paul isn't referring to these specifically. Rather, he's referring in general to all the commands of God for holiness and purity. And do you know how many commands there are in the Old Testament to God's people? Someone counted them up, 613 a lot of laws so i want you to imagine that you are in the church at ephesus and you are having a conversation with one of these false teachers and remember what they're doing is they're taking the law of god and they're using it as a way to salvation keep these laws do these things god will favor you and save you so to speak So you're in a conversation with one of these false teachers. They're defending the importance of people observing the law in order to be saved. How might you respond? Well, we might respond by saying to the false teacher, you've got it all wrong. You don't even know what you're talking about. Since Jesus died and rose again, we don't even need the law anymore. And this is the part where Paul's face turns red and that little vein above his eyebrow starts to pulsate. And he says, you're both wrong. Verse 8, the law is good if one uses it properly. It's improper for the false teacher to say the law can save a person. It's also improper for anyone else to say the law is unnecessary, therefore let's do away with it altogether. What then is the purpose of the law? Well, this is what Paul explains to us in verses 9, 10, and 11. Look at verse 9. He says this. He says, We know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. So immediately we know that the law is not for righteous people. It's not for making people righteous. It's not for those who are righteous. It's intended for lawbreakers and rebels against God. Uh, Let me skip ahead to let you know we all meet that qualification This morning, God's law exposes sin. It's like a spotlight. And when it shines on us, it reveals us for the sinners we are, especially compared to the holy, holy, holiness of the God who made us. And so Paul gives us a long list of sinners whose sin is exposed by the spotlight of the law. Verse 9, the ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, adulterers, perverts, slave traders, liars, and perjurers. And then just to make sure he covers everything, he says, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. 
If you were to do some deeper study on this passage, you might find scholars that say Paul intentionally uh, mirrors the Ten Commandments in the list of sins he names. There's an argument to be made there for sure. But if Paul does anything with this list in comparison to the Ten Commandments, he intensifies the sinfulness. He shows the depth and the breadth of the impact of sin in our lives. Now, I want to hit the pause button and go to a sidebar for a moment. I want us to talk about a word in verse 10 that our Bibles, this, well, this translation, the NIV 84, translates as perverts. If you have a different translation of the Bible, that one Greek word is not translated as pervert. It's translated as those who practice homosexuality. That's a much better translation for many reasons, and it's an important translation. So I want to be very clear, and I want to be very gentle here. Paul names homosexual practice as a sin. What's never identified in Scripture as a sin is same-sex attraction. There's a profound difference between homosexual practice and same-sex attraction. It's not uncommon for people to experience same-sex attraction. The reasons are many and complicated. And people who experience same-sex attraction are not perverts. They're not even non-Christian. Many Christians deal with same-sex attraction, and yet they are truly saved. Same-sex attraction is not sin. However, when a person acts on that attraction beyond the gracious, God-given boundaries in Scripture, that's when we step into sin. So look, the Bible is abundantly clear that lust in all forms, heterosexual and homosexual, is sin. And the Bible is consistent, start to finish, that homosexual practice, activity, is sin. God in his grace and love has given us two permissible expressions of our sexuality. One is heterosexual monogamous marriage. and The other is celibacy. These are God's graces to us. So if you read this verse and you come across that word and you're someone that struggles with same-sex attraction, what should you do? First of all, don't despair. Don't doubt for a minute how precious you are to the Lord and how much He loves you. I want to encourage you to trust Jesus for your road ahead. Here in just a minute, Paul's going to talk about the cure for our sin diagnosis. That cure is the glorious gospel of God. Mercy poured out. And if you're a Christian and you wrestle with same-sex attraction, trust in the one who has poured out mercy and saved you and holds you. And if not, then I I want you to turn to Jesus. I want you to hear what Paul says about him this morning. I want you to believe on the one who made you and has a beautiful plan for your life. The testimony of many of our Christian brothers and sisters could go like this either way. We have brothers and sisters that would tell us, I wrestled with same-sex attraction, and God in his grace changed that in me and moved me in a different way. And we have other brothers and sisters that would say, I've 
prayed and walked with the Lord and I recognize I still carry this. And they both walked forward hand in hand with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Christian, be careful when you use this verse as a proof text to destroy your homosexual opponent. We need more humility in our apologetic because this passage is not about one sin. It is about the complete sinfulness of all mankind and the need for every heterosexual and homosexual broken in our sin, every human being to know the depth and the breadth of our separation from God and to Rely on Christ to rescue us and save us. So what's the purpose of the law? Does the law show us how to reach God? No. It's Paul's point here. Rather, it shows us how far we are from God. And Paul argues that the law is indispensable. It's a necessity. We cannot misuse it, nor can we throw it away. The law diagnoses it is not a cure. Um, Many years ago, I was a senior in college, and my friends and I decided to skateboard. And so we bought skateboards. I don't know if you know this. They they don't make big and tall skateboards. They just come in one size fits all. It's tragic, really. So I'm on my skateboard this one day. I hit a crack in the sidewalk. My skateboard stays behind. My body keeps going forward, and I land on my shoulder and elbow. And I hobble back to my apartment, and I'm getting some clothes. I'm getting ready to leave for the weekend and and go back to my dad's place. I put this laundry in my arm, and and my arm went, and I thought, that's that's not supposed to do that. And so then uh, I got in my truck to drive home it's a standard but I I couldn't shift I had to do the old you know steer with the right hand and then shift with the left hand and then when I got to my dad's place I said hey we got to go to the ER and so we did my dad thought it was so funny to tell people he's a college senior and he hurt himself skateboarding what a loser (laughs) thanks dad he didn't really say loser but that's what it felt like And uh, the nice lady did an x-ray of my elbow. That x-ray revealed a crack. And they put this really huge hard splint on my arm. And then the next day, I got on an airplane and I flew to my girlfriend Melissa's house to spend time for the very first time with my future in-laws. And I had to explain (laughs) how I rescued that nun and all those children from the oncoming bus. (laughs) Central to my diagnosis was the x-ray. The x-ray revealed the crack in my elbow. It's a, that x-ray machine is a diagnostic tool. X-ray machines do not heal, they only diagnose. Likewise, God's law is a diagnostic tool. God's law does not heal, rather it diagnoses. Now since an x-ray machine only diagnoses and does not heal, does that mean we should do away with x-ray machines? No. That would be ridiculous. We need that diagnosis. But what if I got the x-ray, said my elbow's broken, and then I told you, 
x-ray showed my elbow's broken. I'm going to go back and have 10 more x-rays to make it all better. That's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's not the purpose of the x-ray machine. The x-ray machine has a distinct purpose, a high value to us. So if it shows I have a broken elbow, it means I need the cure. I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong until I got the diagnosis from the machine that looked inside. So if we hold our lives up for examination before the law of God, what diagnosis does it give us? It tells us that we are ungodly, that we are sinful, that we are unholy and irreligious. We are All these things named by Paul. We are a people sick and dead in our sin and in need of a cure. If we rely on this diagnostic tool, we will never get well. If we do away with it, we won't know the depths of our sin and our need for a Savior. But the church that's effective with the gospel knows the place of the law and uses it properly to diagnose our distance from God and our need for rescue. If the law is for our diagnosis, then what's going to be our cure? And that leads us to our second characteristic of an effective church. The effective church rejoices in the gospel that cures sin. The effective church rejoices in the gospel that cures sin. So, in verse 12... Paul shifts his focus in a profound way from talking about the law to describing the power of the gospel or the power of the mercy of Jesus to save a sinner. And he uses his own life as the supreme example of the power of the mercy of Jesus to save. So in verses 12 through 16, if you'll follow along with me here, let me map this out for you. Paul follows a a pattern. He describes first the work of Christ, then he describes his own sin, then he describes the mercy that he was given. Work of Christ, Paul's sin, mercy given, and he takes that trip twice in verses 12 to 16. It might help if you look at the most amazing chart you've ever seen in the history of your life, and it will help you perhaps see the pattern. And it looks like this. I know it might be hard to see. Some of the font might be small from where you're sitting. So just take my word for it. It's amazing. Here on the left column, we have verses 12, 13, and 14. And it follows the pattern I just described to you. Paul first describes the work of Christ. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service. So here Paul's describing his commissioning by Christ. Verse 13, he describes his sin. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in Ignorance and unbelief, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Work of Christ, Paul's sin, mercy given. The passage continues, verse 15, we go back to the work of Christ. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here's Paul's conversion. Christ came to save sinners, here's his sin, of whom I am the worst. In the mercy he's been given, 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. The reason I show you, I lay it out this way, this is how it helps me to see the passage, to see Paul's argument. What's he doing and where's he going? Twice he uses the phrase, I was shown mercy. Two different spots, he shows us the depths of his own sin. Two different spots, he shows us the power of Christ to commission and convert. Here's a beautiful picture of the gospel at work in Paul's life. Paul's extremely transparent in the way he talks about his sin. He takes that list of sinners from verses 9 through 11 and he crowns himself as the king of sinners, meaning the worst of sinners. He is a sinner's sinner. That's how Paul describes himself. And I don't think he's just trying to to exaggerate or elicit sympathy. I think Paul really feels this way and he describes his sin directly. I was once a blasphemer, verse 13, a persecutor, a violent man. And he means that in as extreme a way as we can understand those terms. So if Jesus is merciful enough to save the worst sinner of all time, what do you think he could do for you? He took Paul, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, and he poured out mercy abundantly. And so the blasphemer became a worshiper. The persecutor suffered persecution for the name of Christ. The violent man was commissioned to rescue souls. And if Jesus did that for Paul, what do you think he would do for you? Do you have a story like this? Do you have a story that describes the work of Christ in your life and the depth of your sin and the mercy that's been poured out in abundance? Do you have a testimony? That's the question. That's the word we use in church life, a testimony. That story of how Christ rescued you from your sin and its punishment because you put your trust in him. Do you have that kind of story? A story like Paul's. Yours might be, your chart might look different. You might describe what Christ has done and you might describe the depth of your sin and then you might describe next the work you're doing to make it right on your own. I go to church been baptized, do more good than bad. That's not gospel. That's taking the diagnostic tool, the law, and trying to use it to cure what it cannot cure. Do you have this kind of story where Jesus is the hero hero that has rescued you from your sin? Having told the story of Christ's mercy to him, Paul responds in a remarkable way. Look at verse 17 in your Bible with me. Paul writes it like this. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that how we should read verse 17? (laughs) I I don't think so. Look, when, when Paul tells of Christ's mercy to him, he erupts in praise. 
if there was such a thing as caps lock in ancient Greek, this would be it in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul puts down his pen and he runs a victory lap around whatever room he's in and he takes some time to sing praises and to give thanksgiving to God because his salvation never grew old to him. He never lost the awe of the miracle that the eternal, immortal, invisible God poured out mercy abundantly on the worst of sinners. That's rocket fuel for Paul's worship and for our worship as well. Let me ask you, do you have a song like that? Christian, when's the last time you thought deeply about your own conversion and then you erupted in praise to God? It's easy to lose that when circumstances of life, when sin mounts, temptation is continually present, when we are beat down, hard-pressed on every side, it's easy to forget the story and to lose the song. So here's your assignment this week. I want you to get your testimony in the open again, either by telling it or by writing it down. I want you to recall once again where you were and what happened when, to use Paul's words, the grace of our Lord was poured out on you abundantly. Write it down. Maybe you give it to someone else for safekeeping. Maybe you write it down, and then when you finish with the last period, you put your pen down, And you sing. And you say, thank you. And you walk in awe again of the eternal God who poured out mercy and abundance on you. The church that's effective, the church that's outward focused, focused, gets the gospel right in this regard. We experience it. We sing it. We proclaim it to those outside. It's the cure for the law's diagnosis of our sin problem. The effective church uses the law to diagnose. It uses the gospel to cure. And lastly, the effective church needs strong protection. Needs strong protection, verses 18, 19, and 20. Paul's explained the purpose of the law of God, why we need it. He's described the power of the grace of Jesus to save those who believe. And now he charges Timothy to protect the church from false teaching that would misuse the law and mutilate the gospel. So in verse 18, he appeals to Timothy's authoritative position. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Once upon a time in Timothy's life, the word of God was spoken over him. Here's this prophecy that he would lead the church. And so he's to take confidence in the word of God spoken over him. We have this repeated portrayal of Timothy in these two letters. that He sometimes is a timid young man. Paul injects confidence in the, from the word of God into Timothy in his authoritative position. He should take that confidence and what should he do with it? He should fight the good fight. What's the fight worth fighting for Timothy? 
the good fight is the fight for the purity of the gospel. That the law is held in its proper place, used for its proper purpose, and that the gospel is held and used for its proper purpose. That's fight the good fight. Because remember, here's these false teachers from within the church. They're mutilating the law, mutilating the gospel. Timothy, you've got to fight the good fight. Christians love to fight. But for the wrong things. Not in this church, but in other churches, people fight about music and furniture and methods and power and preferences. We fight for the wrong things. God wants us to fight for the right thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ and its proclamation to the lost is worth fighting for. So then Paul gives examples names names, talks about the damage these false teachers have done. He tells Timothy, verse 18, fight the good fight, verse 19, holding on to faith and a good conscience. He always comes back to faith in Christ. He says some have rejected these. They've rejected faith and a good conscience, and so they've shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. These people have rejected faith in a good conscience. That's a mind transformed by the gospel. The result has been a shipwrecked faith. And two leaders in the church that have done this are these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Again, these are guys from within the congregation, people who are known, people who Timothy and others have stories with. What does Paul mean when he says, I've handed them over to Satan? Well, he uses a similar phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And there it's used in regard to how to treat this one particularly immoral man in the church. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the action against the man is church discipline that expels him from the congregation in the hopes that he will return to Christ one day. So here, as in 1 Corinthians 5... Hymenaeus Alexander, if you insist on living a blasphemous, satanic life by destroying the law and destroying the gospel, then the church will release you to your master until such a time as you turn back to Jesus Christ to receive mercy in abundance. Remember, Jesus gives mercy to blasphemers also. That's Paul's testimony. Now you might say, That doesn't sound very gracious. But it is most gracious. Church leaders must protect our people from predators, especially those who teach false gospel. Those teachers or messages that remove remove the cure of the gospel must themselves be removed, and that's the fight worth fighting. The church can't capitulate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a country where tolerance is the greatest good, where coexist is the most popular bumper sticker, where cultural leaders tell us, live your truth, we've got to protect the gospel. Have to protect the gospel. The other day I googled that line, live your truth, and found several other inspirational phrases that were meant to be shared via social media. Phrases like this, life is short, dare to live your truth. When you are true to yourself, a whole new journey begins. If you're not living your truth, you're living a lie. 
Success is nothing more than living your life according to your own truth in your own terms. Hitler lived his own truth on his own terms and six million Jews died. The insanity of worldly wisdom is criminal. I, I get sort of that to thine own self be true vibe. I, I get that. There's a place to talk about that and sort of champion that, I suppose. But we're not in the business of living our own truths. Remember, the law diagnoses us as liars. We can't know our own truth because we lie even to ourselves. We need something better. We need God's truth. That's what we live. We live God's truth. And we've got to protect the church, our homes, our lives from any invader that would try to take us away from trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we fight? Well, Paul said in another letter to the church at Ephesus that our fight is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people. We're fighting against spiritual powers. And so we fight in prayer. We fight in trusting and obeying the word of God. We fight by loving our neighbor as ourselves, by forgiving those who offend us, by telling the story of Jesus. We fight by worshiping together. We fight by having marriages that glorify Jesus Christ. We fight by being single adults who walk in the holiness and purity of Jesus Christ. We fight by being parents that raise kids to know Christ. And we fight by being stewards over our resources in a way that says, this world is not my home. We don't fight as the world fights, yelling and accusing and destroying. The word of God is our sword, and that's the truth that we live. The effective church needs strong protection to use the law for its intended purpose and the gospel for its beautiful cure. So Paul's instructions to Timothy this morning are intended to turn the church outward, to make the church effective. That's really the premise of the whole letter, is making this church healthy once again and infusing its leader with the courage to do so. And according to Paul, the effective church uses God's law to diagnose sin, the gospel to cure it, and protects the church from every threat. It's not flashy, but it's effective It's oil plug theology. It's mission critical. It's how people are saved. I gave you a few questions at the front end. I hope you'd be able to answer by the end of our time together. What's the purpose of God's law to the Christian who's saved by grace? Well, it diagnoses our sin, reveals our need for a Savior. What's the relationship between God's law and the gospel? The gospel is the cure for our sin diagnosis. And how do we protect the church? We protect the church by living God's truth. Sometimes that means hard separations in acts of gracious church discipline. But nevertheless, we protect the church and live in God's truth. That's what effective churches do. That's not all they do, but it's the foundation that we're built on. You have to know this. They have to hear this so that we can sing together. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray.
So, Father God, we praise you. Because in your mercy, you have helped us to see what sinners we are. If I'm evaluating myself, especially in the days before I was a believer, I diagnosed myself as pretty healthy, generally good, certainly not the worst. But when my life is held up in front of your holy and good and perfect law, I see how holy you are and how holy I'm not. So thank you for a law that diagnoses our sin and our need for salvation. And thank you that you have given us the cure by sending your son to die on the cross in our place. Lord God, would you pour out times of refreshing on my brothers and sisters in here as they remember this week their testimonies, as they're filled with awe again at the God who pours out mercy and abundance on the worst of sinners. Thank you that that's the story of everyone in this room who's trusted in you. God, I pray for our friends that don't know you as their Savior. Father, pull them out of that lie. Pull them away from using a diagnostic tool as a healing tool. Lord, let them see their brokenness for how severe it is and let them see Jesus Christ for how beautiful he is. Thank you for this love and thank you for this kind of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.